I've got the COVID blues. I've got the COVID blues. Been inside for 14 days. Now I don't know what to do. Thankfully, we weren't really sick, but being inside so long, we're sick of it. I got the COVID blues. I got the COVID blues. The youngest got it first. A few days later, it was me. Then it was the eldest, and that made it three. The wife, she had it at New Year's. She's outside, she's carefree with no fears. I got the COVID blues, and I think some of you might have it too. Day five, we get out the lateral flows, full of hope to see what they shows. But no one with symptoms has ever been clear. At this early stage, and two lines appear. Now we're climbing the walls with nothing to do. The only thing that we have is the cover blues. Is the cover blues. Oh, I've got the cover blues. And I'm sure that some of you have it too. It's Friday, the 4th of February, 2022, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome to another Hot Topics podcast. Neil Tucker here from day 13 of COVID isolation. Yes, I know loads of you have been in the same boat over the last month or so. Time for me to join the crew. First, the four-year-old gets it. Then I get it three days after that. And then the seven-year-old gets it three days after that. My wife, of course, has already had it at New Year's. So she's in the clear. She gets the privilege of being able to go to work after 13 days of homeschooling and then the progressive slide into greater quantities of YouTube and Minecraft and endless middle-class guilt, I've never wanted to go to work so much. So the podcast, therefore, is a welcome distraction. And boy, has it been a busy couple of weeks in the world of medicine and general practice news. We've had a report into racism in the NHS being published. We've had England's health secretary commissioning another report, yet another report, on the concept of nationalising general practice and sharing this with the Times before sharing it with us. And we've had details about the effects of the vaccination programme and us repurposing general practice to try and go all in on that has had on other services that we provide. So we'll have a little think about the news and then we'll get into the research and today we'll have a look at two papers examining new treatments for acute COVID in non-hospitalised patients and then we'll have a look at a couple of papers in the BJGP on continuity of care. So firstly there's been a lot in the medical media this week about racism in the NHS and this comes off the back of interim findings by the BMA, they are due to publish in the spring a document entitled Anti-Racism in Medicine, a really big report into the issue. And it is a really big issue. Over 90% of black and Asian doctors and medical students think racism is an issue within the medical profession. 75% 
of doctors and medical students report experiencing racism at least once in the last two years. 17% experiencing it regularly. More often than not, incidents go unreported because there's a lack of confidence that the incident would be addressed or that in fact it will make the situation worse for the person who is reporting that incident. This, of course, is not just a hospital issue. This is an issue in general practice as well. It comes off the back of the CQC admitting that they may inadvertently disadvantage ethnic minority-run GP practices, leading to inequalities. And we've had previous reports from LMCs that at least half of black, Asian and minority ethnic primary care staff have experienced racism at work in practices from either patients or their fellow colleagues. Given that the BMA survey suggests that a majority of people, including majority of white respondents, feel that race discrimination is an issue within the profession, that suggests then that perhaps it's a minority of people that are causing a large problem. That, of course, is assuming that those who think it is an issue aren't contributing further to the issue of racism, although that's not necessarily a given. But it does beg the question, if it is some of our colleagues who are driving some of this process... What are we doing about it? And I don't necessarily mean what is the person who's directly affected doing about it. What are the rest of us doing about it? Surely we need to be calling out these individuals more, addressing their behaviour and attitude. And we need to be supporting those colleagues who have been affected in a better way. And then, of course, there's the patient issue. Patients, of course, have a right to choose who provides their medical care. And we've all been in situations where maybe things haven't gone as well as they could have done. Maybe communication has broken down. Maybe there was a misdiagnosis or just a bad reaction to an appropriate treatment and patients have somehow lost faith in us and wish to change clinician. But equally, I'm sure that many of us have been in this situation, not just GPs, but every member of the practice staff. Well, I'd like an appointment with one of the doctors, please, but not the brown one. And that's the kind of stuff that we need to be firmer with that we need to say, actually, you know what, that is not acceptable. Not in our practice and not in the health service. Speaking of unacceptable, let's move on to the health secretary and plans to nationalise general practice. Now, actually, that's just a weak segue as opposed to my opinions about the health secretary. I'm keeping an open mind at the moment. As um, those of you who have listened to the podcast over the last couple of years will know, I'm not necessarily against the idea of of you might call it nationalising the NHS, getting GPs to be salaried to the NHS as opposed to the partnership model. I know that uh, many partners will have very different views on that, including my own wife who's a partner, which can be a cause of some friction at home at some point. But what all of us agree on is that continuing with the status quo is not sustainable. If it is true that Sajid Javid has actually said to Boris Johnson... As an aside, getting any time with Boris Johnson at the moment seems quite tricky given the pasting he's been taking over the last couple of weeks about having multiple parties in Number 10 Downing Street over the course of Covid restrictions whilst the rest of us twiddled our thumbs. Although I suppose that Javid could have actually taken a cake and a couple of bottles of champagne over to Boris pretending it was actually a party and then surprising him that it was actually a work visit all along. Then he may have been able to get his message across that, quote, there are considerable drawbacks to the current system and he's advising an independent review of the future of primary care to help drive innovation and bring together primary and secondary care. 
Happy Days, another independent review. Presumably, he's got some mates who are in the business that might do the independent review because we had one of these just a few years ago. I think it was three years ago and they concluded that probably it was worth just keeping what's going on at the moment as it is. And that seems to be a similar feeling throughout the civil service as they've recognised the value of general practice over the last two years. I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but in November I went to a fireworks display and met a guy there who used to work in the government a year or two ago in healthcare policy. And he was saying just before the pandemic... There was loads of talk about what's the point of general practice and should we should we get rid of it completely? And I was really shocked by that sentiment. And then the pandemic hit and then we made whole scale changes as as requested and required in general practice. We've delivered the vaccination program at breakneck speed. And now they can see the value of general practice and none of the talk is about getting rid of it. All of the talk is about supporting it. Now, I am not adverse to the idea about becoming a nationalised salaried GP in the same way that all other doctors, including consultants, are salaried to the NHS. The caveat, of course, is as the system is redesigned, better working conditions must be central to that. Longer consultation times, fewer consultations per day, making general practice once again more sustainable. I do have deep, deep reservations that just having hospital trusts run general practice. So people that really have had no experience and have no understanding of what general practice is about or what it does, making all those decisions seems like a terrible, terrible idea. Better integration between primary and secondary care. Fantastic idea if you can somehow make it work. Having everything run by secondary care terrible idea. Now not everyone would feel that wholesale changes in general practice is what's required to improve our working lives. Many would argue that if you can just get rid of unnecessary bureaucracy that would free up loads of time for clinicians during the working day. So if you get rid of the CQC, if you get rid of QOF and there's this whole rhetoric that's evolved around if you just let clinicians make the decisions about what's good for their patients and necessary for their local populations then that's the best way to run a service. There's this whole kind of rose-tinted perspective that we're all massive altruists and that the patient always comes first and while on individual levels that's often the case there's this big conflict of interest in general practice as a whole and of course that's the requirement to make money so that practices can run, they can continue and they can pay their staff and GPs, the owners, can pay themselves. It also seems to be the case that incentivizing good practice leads to good practice. The biggest falls that we've seen in antibiotic prescribing over the last few decades had been um, in that period where we incentivized reductions in unnecessary antibiotic prescribing. And while many people may lament the box-ticking exercises of QOF, the reality is that actually it's driven better patient care for many, many people. So before we consider this unnecessary bureaucracy and consign it to the bin, it's worth just having a look at this third piece of news, which is the a report from the National Diabetes Audit looking at a period between January and September 2021. And of course, during that time, we were really ramping up vaccination processes and practices were being asked to reprioritise work to try and facilitate that process. 
diabetes checks are just one small part of that reprioritized work and the figures are quite startling. So the percentage of people with type 2 diabetes having an HbA1c check fell from 93% in 2019 and 20 to 74% in 2021. So that's almost a 20% drop in people having an HbA1c check. That's the most basic thing that we can do to see what's going on with someone's diabetes. The rate of people having a blood pressure check fell from 95% down to 70%. That's even worse. Doing a blood pressure check is the most important thing we can do to, um, or one of the most important things we can do to help prevent future cardiovascular disease in our diabetic patients. You could argue that that might not matter so much if the proportion of people within their blood pressure targets was being maintained, but that wasn't the case either. So the number of people with adequately controlled blood pressures went down by around 10% or so. And this isn't small a smaller number of people. This is 3.2 million people have type 2 diabetes in the UK. 700,000 of them may not have had a blood pressure check last year. Now, of course, last year was quite exceptional. You wouldn't expect this to happen every single year. And of course, there's only so much work that general practice can do. If you ask us to do something else, something from somewhere else has to give. But as we emerge from the pandemic over the next couple of years, that's the timescale that my brain's working on now. If we have an opportunity to redesign parts of general practice, let's make sure we're focusing on the right areas and not actually getting rid of some areas which might improve patient care. Okay, enough about the news and on to the research. So we're going to kick off with two new publications, one in the New England Journal of Medicine and one in JAMA, looking at new or sort of new medications for acute COVID in non-hospitalised patients. And this has been a huge area just an explosion of medications have come out over the last few months initially the manufacturers were looking at the most unwell patients in hospitals and trying their new drugs on them but now they've turned their attention to the much much bigger market of our patients in the community who are not very unwell with covid so firstly, we have in the New England Journal of Medicine, Remdesivir. So that's a familiar name to most of us. They are um, using that in the hospitals in the UK in most severely unwell patients. Given as a subcutaneous injection over three days, they examined whether there was utility in it for non-hospitalised patients and preventing them becoming severely unwell. In these studies, they were looking at people with one risk factor for disease progression, so age over 60, obesity, or some coexisting medical condition. This was a randomized controlled trial, 562 participants, mean age 50, and most common coexisting conditions of type 2 diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. 1.6% of the remdesivir group and 8.3% of the placebo group had to go to hospital within 28 days of their diagnosis of COVID, which is an 87% relative risk reduction with no increase in adverse events compared with the placebo group. Pretty good results. So remdesivir, you might call an antiviral medication. It specifically is a direct-acting nucleotide prodrug inhibitor for SARS-CoV-2 RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Okay, 
I tell you that only to separate it from the second study in JAMA, which looks at a combination of subcutaneous casivirimab and imdevimab, which are both monoclonal antibodies. They neutralise the infection by binding to non-overlapping epitopes of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein receptor binding domain and therefore they block virus entry. Now in this randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase 3 trial, you didn't even need to be in a higher risk category for, for COVID progression. You simply needed to be 12 years or over in a house with a positive COVID case identified within four days of that case turning positive needed to be asymptomatic and then have a positive PCR yourself. You then had either a single dose of subcutaneous casivirimab plus indevimab or placebo. 314 participants. So the results show that the treatment group have had almost half the rate as the placebo group for progression onto symptomatic disease. So here we've got people with no symptoms being prevented to, from developing symptoms. It's really quite amazing. If you did get symptoms, you had five days less of symptoms on average and you had a lower viral load compared with the placebo group as well. You also had less adverse events in the treatment group, particularly because you reduced the COVID-related adverse events. Both of these drugs show very, very promising results. But you still wonder if the makers of them are completely off their rockers. So they currently cost somewhere between one and two thousand pounds each per course. Can you imagine in the UK giving every one of the hundred thousand patients a day who have been te who's tested positive for covid a drug treatment that costs one to two thousand pounds with a chance of them maybe feeling a little bit better over the next few days okay guys just hear me out if you give us two thousand pounds we'll give you an injection so that your patient with covid with no symptoms right now can go to hospital to have that injection and then they may i repeat may not get any symptoms or for virtually no money at all, you could wait a little bit and if they do get symptoms, you can give them some paracetamol. What do you think? Who's with me? Perhaps maybe you can argue the wider economic benefits preventing people having uh, more time off of work, interrupting the continuing growing cycle of infections around the country. Maybe, just maybe then, the economics might work. But I'm pretty sure most of us don't believe that. It's almost like we are entering the golden age of new drugs. There's this fantastic pipeline of RNA drugs coming through, monoclonal antibodies coming through, these new antiviral medications coming through. But they're going to need to be so much cheaper if any of us are going to have even the slightest sniff at them. Having said that, there is now interim clinical commissioning policy guidance for antivirals or neutralising monoclonal antibodies for non-hospitalised patients with COVID-19. First line is this new um, Pfizer drug, Paxlovid or Sotrovimab. Second line, Remdesivir. Third line, Molnupiravir. This NHS guidance for the whole of the United Kingdom is becoming effective on the 10th of February. 
The caveat, of course, is this is not for every asymptomatic case over the age of 12. This is for a very limited group of people who are at the highest risk of COVID disease progression and severe COVID. And essentially, it's people who were on the former extremely clinically vulnerable list. Okay, and lastly, we're going to have a look at some research in the BJGP. Now, you will all know that my opinions of the BJGP have changed immeasurably over the last decade or so, and I think it is now a fantastic journal. February's edition is well worth a read. I love the life and time sections where different clinicians share their thoughts with us, and there's some brilliant ones this time. So there's a, a a GP called Nick Berry. What are GPs for when the chips are down? It's a fantastic article where he bemoans about some um, idiotic Financial Times journalist um, and compares his article to a bag of chips. A great article called The Invisible GP by a GP called Sati here Stavert. Hopefully I've pronounced that right. And uh, I won't I won't go into all of it, but there's this great um, line that they have at the start. A patient recently asked me when the practice was going to open again. I replied that I was at that very moment seeing them face to face in my consultation room. I'm sure we've all had that same conversation over the last two years. And whilst the the journal does need to be careful, that it doesn't just descend into one giant moaning pit. There was a lovely article from a retired GP called Bupinda Gareya, who also used to be a Buddhist monk about um, a call to charity. Well worth a read. All of this has put me in a reflective mood. And as someone who has recently um, quit their salaried role in an attempt to try and take back some control over my working life and join the ranks of GP locums, the thing that I miss most about having a regular job, a regular practice and regular patients is the continuity and the relationships we build. That, after all, of course, is the heart of general practice. But what about the risks with lack of continuity? And here we've got two papers looking at exactly that. One is an observational study from Norway. And they highlight, just as many of us will have found in the UK over the last few years, continuity in general practice is under pressure in Norway. Does that really matter? So they looked at the use of out-of-hours services and acute hospital admissions. Both of those fell significantly with the longer duration of continuity with your regular GP with almost 30% lower rates of out-of-hours use and acute hospital admissions once you've been with a GP for 15 years. It's worth noting that around half to two-thirds of that effect occurs once you've had a GP for two to three or four to five years. And then the benefits slow down, although they do keep on increasing over time. Now, you could think that this was down to an effect of, well, I'll just wait to see my own GP. So maybe I won't use out-of-hours services at the weekend. I'll just hold on for them, my long-term GP. And so that kind of biases the results somewhat. But you can't mess with mortality statistics. When you're dead, you are dead. And they found compared with people who had had a GP for just one year, over 15 years where the continuity reduced mortality in a patient population by around 25%. The authors acknowledge that this is complex data and they could be confounders. And it's always sensible for us as the readers to challenge the data. 
is that mortality statistic too good to be true? It may be that perhaps it's been influenced by uh, patients, for instance, who are very unwell, being discharged from hospital to a different area, maybe to a new nursing home. And so therefore, they've only got a short duration with their new GP before they die. And that could um, influence the results. But nevertheless, they feel on the strength of the data, they conclude that continuity in primary care clearly has benefits for patients and that the promotion of stability among regular GPs should be a priority for health authorities. Wouldn't that be a great thing? The second paper, I'll be really brief because I've been talking for a long time now. This was UK-based data looking at patients with dementia and examining the rates of um, inappropriate prescribing and adverse health outcomes against continuity of GP care and their findings were quite clear as well so higher continuity of care was associated with safer prescribing and lower rates of major adverse effects again concluding that increasing continuity of care for patients with dementia may help improve treatment and outcomes so a theme emerges continuity is better for our patients of course, in the UK at the moment, we are going in the wrong direction. I am a case in point. So a key question for our health secretary, as he commissions yet another independent report on general practice, should really be, what are you going to do to try and improve continuity in primary care? Running practices out of hospitals probably is not the way forwards. General practice needs to be local and it needs to be personal but it also needs to be sustainable. As ever, thank you for listening once again. I'm off to write some slides for the new Hot Topics course. So the spring summer Hot Topics course will be out in the next few weeks. In the meantime, we've got our cancer course coming up this Saturday. Next Saturday, we've got our new abnormal blood test course. That's going to be an absolute cracker. Of course, remember, if you've signed up to our subscription service, NB+, just over £300 a year, you get to come on every course that we run online, live or on demand. All of the booklets online as well and loads of extras that are on the website too. If you can think of a bigger bargain, please do email me. So do get in touch. You can get us on Twitter. So at GP Hot Topics, we're on Facebook. You can email me as well, hottopics at nbmedical.com. What do you think about nationalisation? What do you think about being a salaried GP to a hospital? What do you think might improve continuity? Would you pay £2,000 to not get covid 14 days ago, I would have said definitely not. 14 days later, I'm on the fence. I wish you well. Look after yourselves out there. Bye-bye.